Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Porn, addiction, depression, hopelessness. These are some of the words Sorab Armari uses to describe the state of Western society. Armari was raised in Iran to liberal parents and embarked on an extraordinary journey from being an atheist Marxist to a Catholic conservative in New York. My name is Stephen Edgington, and in this discussion, Armari and I talk about his latest book, The Unbroken Thread, which describes his solution to what he sees as the rise of moral corruption in the West. I began by asking whether the Enlightenment, the great movement seeking to question old beliefs, has failed. Well, I would say that there are enormous achievements associated with the Enlightenment. I'm specifically linking the Enlightenment to the scientific revolution, which has brought enormous benefit, and generally the empirical way of looking at the world has brought enormous benefit to countless people around the world. There's no denying that. But I think the Enlightenment ideology, the idea that the ultimate aim of a society is to just allow each person to maximize his own individual freedom and a concept of freedom that's divorced from any moral content, which would have been completely unfathomable to the ancients and the medievals, right? In the ancient frame, to be free means to to choose what you ought to do, to freely choose what makes you truly happy as a human being, which is to means to fulfill your nature as a, as a rational being. The Enlightenment account of freedom says it doesn't matter what you choose as long as you, you are free to the extent that you're unrestrained and you're, you could do this or you could do that. You can get married or you can get divorced. You can blaspheme or worship. It doesn't really matter. The real goal is to just leave you to be as unrestrained as possible so long as you're not harming others, and sometimes even up to the point of harming others, then that means freedom. I think that idea, 300, 400 years later, has played out in many ways, in the failures that we all sense around us, whether that's the rise of corporate, private corporate power to such an extent that it crowds out other goods, such as the, you know, the well-being of workers, families, political communities, nation states, what have you. That idea of maximal individual liberty has not resulted us in being freer. It's in, in many cases subjected us to tyranny, but often it's tyranny that's carried out by private actors, so we don't often recognize them as such. Again, one good example might be big tech censorship. You know, this ideal of informed, small-D democratic debate is now hindered not by government censors, not by state actors, but by these monstrous corporations. I think that's one good kind of crisp example of how losing sight of a deeper account of what is our, what are our freedoms for has paradoxically played out in the form of greater repression, maybe more insidious repression. Should we be striving for progress in society overall? Well, as you can imagine, someone with my views is is deeply skeptical of the idea of progress as the assertion that there is this one overarching aim 
toward which all societies should be aiming at. And that aim is progress, and it entails overcoming lots of traditional and natural barriers that formerly guided individuals and societies. I think there's, first of all, a great risk in that in terms of a moral danger in that. The societies that consider themselves, quote-unquote, progressive can tend to lose sight of their own shortcomings because they view the past as just a collection of mistakes and, uh, you know, horrible tyrants and the assorted crimes of, you know, dead white males, if you will. And it's not that I paint a rosy picture of the past. You know, the past was disfigured by all sorts of bad things as well. But the danger in progressive thinking is that you think that whatever is newest must be best. And therefore, the past must have just been horrible. And then you lose sight of your own mistakes. Another uh, danger in telling that is that, again, it it, uh, makes you lose sight of the fact that some of the most horrendous moral crimes were actually committed relatively recently in the uh, history of our species by regimes that considered themselves to be progressive. In other words, their, their scientific and technological development didn't necessarily progress in tandem with their moral development. So it's a very, I think it's a very dangerous idea. And it really what it is, is it, it's a, an attempt to bring down to an earthly level what is ultimately a Christian kind of spiritual conception, which is that ultimately, yes, history is a linear form. And in the Christian frame, ultimately, God will redeem his creation and bring us to a point where there are no tears. God himself wipes away every tear. Obviously, I believe that as a Christian, But the attempt to realize it on an earthly plane in our own material world often yields historical enormities and crimes. If you spoke to someone like Steven Pinker, he would argue that all you have to do is look at the statistics, life expectancy, the boom in population, the massive increase in scientific advancement in terms of medicine and everything else has been an absolute fantastic success story, and the Enlightenment is directly linked to that. So what would you say to the argument that humanity, and you can prove it with basic facts, humanity has progressed in the last 300 years? I'm not uh, the kind of curmudgeon who reaps the benefits of the Enlightenment and scientific uh, revolution, not least the fact that you and I are now speaking you know, across the distance of an ocean in real time and you capture my video, there's, there's something very impressive about that and or the fact that, you know, we can now feed millions of people that formerly would have gone hungry thanks to modern agricultural methods. So I'm not pining for a return to, you know, some sort of less developed stage. What I argue is that it's a mistake to impose on the whole of life values and strategies that work perfectly well in the laboratory. So, the achievements of the Enlightenment in the laboratory in terms of the, this kind of Steven Pinker litany of statistics that he can pull are appropriate in their own domain. The problem begins, I think, when you seek to use that and say that's the only model and that's the only uh, way for answering life's questions. There are certain questions, moral and religious questions, that don't have scientific technical answers. And the attempt to answer them using scientific and technical means, it means is morally dangerous. So, for example, and these are very fundamental questions, you know, why is an individual life worth living? Uh, There's no scientific answer to that. You could say, well, we have an instinct to go on, but human beings have very, very many instincts. And some of those instincts are sometimes intention. Our instinct to protect our families against danger is intention with our instinct to preserve our own lives. So which of those instincts is in the right? In order to make that decision, you you cannot rely on instinct alone because you're a rational creature. You're not merely just the product of instincts and impulses. And people do make that decision. How do they make that decision based off of? Well, they turn to philosophy. They turn to religion, which have their own legitimate domain. So I have no problem with, for example, industrial agriculture feeding many more people than used to be able to eat. But I just don't think that, you know, the kind of worldview and the mechanisms that operate in industrial agriculture have settled the more fundamental questions that the ancient u- ancients used to answer using philosophy and religion. So just keep things in their proper domains, and I think we'll be happier. And again, that the, the kind of st- graphs and statistics way of thinking that uh, someone like Pinker 
puts forward, loses sight of a lot of horrors that have attended modernity. Modernity has also, in addition to those legitimate achievements, which we should recognize, has also entailed great genocides. It has entailed various regimes, especially the Nazis, who saw themselves as very advanced. And precisely because they saw themselves as an advanced civilization, they thought it fit to get rid of forms of human life that were, you know, as the Germans said, lives unworthy of life, people with intellectual disabilities and so forth. How do you prevent that? Well, you have to rely on a notion of inherent human dignity that applies to everyone. And you cannot have inherent human dignity, but for a kind of religious metaphysical frame. Are you not picking and choosing? Are you not having your cake and eating it by supporting the successes of the Enlightenment, but by forgetting its values? And what I mean by that is questioning religion, questioning the status quo, taking risks, has enabled humanity to advance in these fantastic areas of science and medicine, etc., that Steven Pinker would talk about. So are you not having your cake and eating it by supporting the successes, but by forgetting how those successes came about? It's not as if the ancients and medievals, by the way, didn't have their own successes, right? Uh, uh, And it's not as if uh, they didn't have their own genocides as well. It's worth pointing that out. That's true. And so again, then the the way to resolve these kinds of tensions of who was better and who was not is to apply a, a broader moral and rational conception than to just say, well, who's done better on XYZ point? The medievals and the ancients unquestionably lived, I think, richer lives in terms of, you know, they looked at the world around them and they, they didn't sense that they were aliens in the world. They had this sense of that nature was orderly and that you could reason about its orderliness and ultimately work your way without even divine revelation. You could work your way back that there must have been a God, right? There must have been some uncaused cause that set in motion this chain of things that we see around them, this chain of orderly causation that we see around them. That allows you to be at peace in a world in a way that moderns aren't. On the other hand, again, like I said, there's no point in being a well-fed person in the year 2021 and pining for agricultural methods that would have left a lot of people hungrier or, or medical techniques that were not sufficiently advanced and would have caused a lot of people to die of diseases. So the way to do that, the way I think to balance those is to have what um, John Paul the, Pope John Paul II thought, thought of as um, breathing with both your lungs, that there is faith and reason together can achieve sort of a higher harmony, a higher synthesis uh, in terms of allowing us to be in the world rather than you know, going down this route of, well, they, they killed people, you know, uh, we kill people too. We have science, they don't have science. There's scientific technical reason, which has its place, including that kind of radical skepticism and questioning that you're talking about. But the, the sc- radical skeptical questioning mindset applied to moral questions can lead us to a plane of saying, well, why shouldn't we get rid of disabled people who don't, uh, you know, they don't, only cognition matters, only scientific thinking matters, and they're not capable of it. So why do they have any dignity as human beings? Why shouldn't we get rid of them? Or any number of kind of aberrant sexual behaviors, you can say, why shouldn't we do them? So it's that harmony of, I think, of faith and reason, of, of, of tradition and, and rationality that I think makes for a fully human life. And all I argue is that we've emphasized one half of the two in a disordered way. In the book, I argue that the notion of reason that we've adopted is a really narrow account of reason because it thinks of reason as only the act of of looking at material phenomena and tracing their kind of efficient causes, material causes, and not thinking of reason as broadly as the ancients and medievals did, which said, and what are these things for? What is the final cause? What does that lead us back to? So we've we actually, I agree, we have a pinched account of reason, a narrow and impoverished account of reason, which nevertheless, I acknowledge, has given us lots of great things in the domain of the scientific and technical. Including, as you say, this wonderful technology in order to conduct this interview. Your book, um, your book's interesting because it talks about very broad themes and very big questions, but you also focus in on your son. Can you talk about the personal aspect of the problem with progressivism, with the Enlightenment. How is this impacting individuals? Sure. So I wrote the book for my son, Max. He's four years old now. He was two when I started writing the book. And he's named after St. Maximilian Kolbe, 
who was this Franciscan friar in Poland at first half of the 20th century, and found his way. He was, as the Nazis did, they arrested lots of Catholic priests and they arrested him. And he was canonized, he was recognized as a saint because when he was in Auschwitz, he chose to die in place of another person, a stranger, someone he didn't know at all. But that person was a married husband and father. And when he cried out that I'm going to get executed, what will happen to my wife and children? St. Maximilian stepped into his shoes and offered to die in his place. So I named my son, obviously, after St. Maximilian because I want to bind him in some way to the ideals that made possible that great sacrifice. My fear is that if left to our culture's kind of contemporary worldview and just our, the thrust of our culture, great acts of sacrifice like that, great acts of, I would say, true freedom will become illegible to my son, that they'll be somehow insensible to him. They don't make sense. Why would someone do that? And why would he be recognized for it if, as our culture often tells us, to be free means to just merely maximize your individual well-being. There's no duty involved in the question of freedom. And, you know, you should just try to keep, quote unquote, your options open as much as possible. That's a phrase that I really hate and I hone in on in the book because to keep your options open actually means not to really exercise your freedom. You're not really choosing, you're not irrevocably binding yourself to any one path. And I see that with a lot of elites in your and my kind of age group. You know, they're educated, they're doing great things in terms of material successes. But ultimately, as you see, they kind of float through life and they don't commit to any one path, whether that's marriage or entering the religious life or what have you. They just have this anxiety of choosing anything. And I argue that's a, that's a product of this worldview that says you should always be as unhindered and to be free means to be sort of as unrestrained as possible. Maximize your autonomy. Don't get attached don't allow things to attach themselves to you, whether that's other human beings or great causes. And so I wrote this book because I think that's a very impoverished view. And indeed, it does make the sacrifice of a kolbe meaningless. Of course, there are still lots of people who, in their daily lives, commit great acts of sacrifice. They Parents who work late hours to be able to provide for their children and so forth. But if they do that, it's over against what our ideology, where our contemporary ideology tells them to do. And if, again, if left to its own devices, our, our ideology would lead them, I think, in this very impoverished place, morally materi- and, and spiritually, if not materially. So I wrote this book in a way to inoculate my son against our contemporary ideology and to introduce him to a different account of freedom that says f- actually f- only our rights insofar as they correspond to duties, that there are many restrictions that traditional cultures and nature itself imposes on human freedom. And those restrictions, while they look like impositions, in fact, they're a source of liberation. And we see paradoxically, when we lose those restraints, we become less free. When we lose the Sabbath, we're told it's for choice. You can you do whatever you want on Sunday. You can, you can shop, you can work, whatever you want. But in fact, it means we're, you're just living a more harried life. You're more attached to your cell phone or what have you because you don't have one day where you devote to higher things. Can you be clear in, in what happens to you when you lose these values of sacrifice and maybe you're on your phone all day or you're out shopping on a Sunday, what happens to you as a human being? Do you become more unhappy, depressed, purposelessness in your life? I don't think you're being particularly clear about the actual social impact on individuals. At the individual level, I can only talk about my own experience. I'm like anyone else and there are those moments when, you know, you spend hours by a cell phone and you don't know what, you, what exactly you achieve. So there's that kind of, exactly that kind of purposeless, psychological purposeness that you, you talked about against which tradition provides a, a bulwark because tradition says, this is this time of year. Here's who you, whom you should honor. Here's the candle you should light. Here's how you should deny your appetites. And in, in denying your appetites, feeding greater, ap- your immediate appetites, you feed greater appetites. And that's what's, what a traditional life provides. It's this sense of ordered continuity where I know what I'm supposed to do in a given stage of my life rather than kind of endlessly, solipsistically looking inside yourself or to media, whether that's uh, social media or what have you. But on a collective plane, it's a little easier. And I can mount, let's say, alternative statistics to Professor Pinker's. Namely, I mean, we do see all of these negatively trending social phenomena. You, you see, for example at least in the U.S., one out of five millennials say they have no friends. You see one out of two marriages fail. So in other words, half of marriages in the United States fail. That's a catastrophe. Something is not working in the institution of marriage anymore, maybe because everyone thinks of it as just a mere choice. Like this person was 
it fulfilled me as I understood it at the time, no longer does. So let's get divorced. You have this, I mentioned the epidemic of loneliness, even before the coronavirus lockdowns, you, you have the very low rates of family formation. So those are some statistics that we have to grapple with. Why are we so lonely? Why don't young people get married? Why don't they want to have children? Again, these are sort of very natural, normal human things to do. And yet we're setting them aside. So I argue that these, in many cases, have can be traced back in a plausible way to an ideology that just says self-fulfillment is the ultimate and only goal of human life. And self-fulfillment, again, defined in a very kind of narrow, materialistic way. Can you talk about the alternative? You've talked about the disastrous aspects of modernity. What is your alternative? What's your vision? What's your utopia? Well, I have no utopia because, as you know, utopia means no place. Any longing for utopia, I think, is misplaced. What I've suggested is that we can, as a society, and as indiv- starting with individuals, but then it needs social support, we can turn back the clock, if you will. Again, the clock aspect bothers me because it suggests that, again, history moves in this kind of progress reaction along this progress reaction axis, which casts doubt on the past somehow. So I don't like to use that language. But we can, let's say, restore some of the barriers that were heedlessly broken. And it doesn't have to be this way, in other words. So, for example, in the book, I talk about the Sabbath. In Europe still, in many areas, including in Britain and in Austria and many other, other, many other parts of Europe, they still have Sunday trading bans. And these are pre- societies that are pretty secular, but they've retained the Sunday trading bans. It's, I, I use it because it's a very simple example of a restriction that was in place. Yes, it had a religious dimension, but even for non-believing people, the idea that workers should get a day off to spend with their family, to have time to enjoy culture, to do other things other than just serving a corporate master, that has a temporal or secular dimension. And in the United States, as you may know, we've had a Sabbatarian kind of tradition, the idea that the law should hallow one day a week, going back to colonial times before there was an American Republic. And it was only recently that we lost the Sabbath, and I argue that it's been to the detriment of especially working-class people. So that's one example. Another might be, look, I, in the book, I argue against what you would call gender ideology, the notion that the human body is just this kind of apparatus that your mind is tethered to, but it's your mind that's really who you are. The body has no meaning. And therefore, if your body clashes with your interior sense of who you are, then you can just kind of alter the body surgically to become who you really must be, as your mind tells you. Again, that's the, the body is one of those limits. It's not imposed by tradition. It's by imposed by nature itself. And I argue that the loss of the, the body as this limit in place and time, this is who I am, these features that you see, that, those features that I see, that's Stephen. It's, it's the whole of him. It's not just his mental stuff, but his body is a constitutive part of him. The loss of that has paradoxically yielded kind of, again, it's another example of how the loss of a limit makes us less free. It's forced us to acknowledge things that are nonsense, things that are manifestly untrue. It's forced us to use uh, this figure, not just the body, but the, but the English language, to reflect these norms that don't make sense about you know, uh, 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 you know, using third-person plural pronouns and what have you. We can stop that. And I think a lot of voters on both sides of the Atlantic are kind of becoming uh, a little fed up with this stuff, although the elite culture is just barrels on with them. We can resist that, and I think we should. Should we do it through the states? You've mentioned voters there, and you're talking about Sunday trading laws. Yeah, and it's yeah, interesting that you're talking about in America, a major part of the Constitution is se- separating the church and state. Yes, so yes. Although the are Sunday, you against that, the, the, for example? Yeah, no. I mean, the U.S. Constitution, the U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly upheld those Sunday trading bans. In other words, it's it's held that it does not violate the separation of church and state for the state to designate one day as a protected day for whatever reason that the state deems. So the reason we got rid of Sunday trading bans was not uh, constitutional reasons. It was just more the lobbying of the uh, kind of business community, uh, this chamber of commerce. When I say this, it does surprise a lot of people that there's a certain kind of libertarian that says you should have absolute separation and the state shouldn't get involved in any of these things is not only running up against kind of my arguments in, on, the, on the plane of religion or morality, but is also creating a kind of libertarian America that never was. America was a lot more, of a, lot more of, a, of a complicated place when it came to these questions than 
strict civil libertarians imagine. Or on the question of, like, let's say, pornography, this country has had obscenity laws going back to, the, again, the colonial era and then federal obscenity laws. It's only relatively recently, maybe since the 1950s and 60s, where the Supreme Court has really defanged efforts to rein in obscenity. So the point of all this is, yes, I'm talking about the use of state power, which is, in according to the ancient definition, the go into state, to, to statesmanship or stateswomanship, to f- help form a virtuous citizenry. That's the classical definition of what political power was all about. And it's true that, you know, it, ideally you would use, ex- nearly just sort of exhort people to virtue, like say, oh, you should, we, should, we should be better, you should, you know, here's, here's a better way to live. But interestingly, both Aristotle and then Thomas Aquinas say that that's not enough, that exhortations to virtue are enough because they don't have what law has, which is the ability to discipline and restrain people. And laws, by the way, even in a libertarian state, discipline and restrain people in all sorts of ways, in a very common way. And so that's, that's inevitable. The only question is, what ends are you using it for? The law is always a teacher. Whatever, whatever it allows or prohibits, that sends a message to people about what's good and what's not good. So, I th- so as a conservative, I think conservatives shouldn't shy away from the use of the law as a mechanism for forming citizens, which is what, again, Cicero, Aristotle, so all the kind of ancient authorities just took that for granted. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 5% off your first purchase with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for 5% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Granted, because they knew that people don't just respond to mere exhortations. They need the support of a kind of material structure and laws to form them and help them kind of really fulfill themselves. So, I, you know, yeah, no, I have no problem with using the law. And- Who are you to decide what people can and can't do in their lives? Why should you form your own? I think, you know, there is an argument to say that by using the state to form people's way of lives is, in a way, trying to form your own kind of utopia and you're acting as God and trying to force people into acting in a way that you think is suitable. What's wrong with letting people make their own minds up on this? Are you being patronising in a way by saying, well, look, you don't know what's good for you, I do, and therefore you know, my opinion should be enforced through the state and through laws? Where does that stop? What happens if someone says the exact same thing as you but has completely opposite and awful views? The process that you described is just what happens in every human society. There is no human society that leaves it up to people entirely to make up their own minds. Any number of, by the way, even so let's say in the most libertarian society, you would assume, you would hope that murder and, and contractual cheating or what have you, fraud, are banned. And that sends a message. That's forming people and says... Something is good and some, some other acts are, are bad. So only the most kind of absolute relativist who, in fact, doesn't exist. In the real world, most people do not act as if relativism is true. They just they take it for granted that the laws will shape them. Hold that law has no business forming people because it does. And even if it's, by the way, if it's not the formal law of the state, there are all sorts of coercive mechanisms that shape you in private life. And those together form the sort of customs, habits, and shape of a society. So again, to bring up an easy example, maybe, but it's a, it's a relevant one because it's a real social crisis right now, I would say, is pornography. People will say, well, Saurabh Amari is coercive. He wants to ban pornography or restrict access to children for it. But think about it this way. 
In a society in which, as the, is the case with across most of the developed world, nine out of ten boys before they hit puberty encounter hardcore pornography, and we know hardcore pornography is extremely addictive, those children are being formed and they're being coerced, not just by the profiteering motive of the pornographer, but by their own defective wills, which get kind of twisted by the effects of porn on the human brain. So coercion is going on. They're being coerced. It's just not the state that's coercing them. So my point is that some degree of this kind of standard setting by authorities and society is inevitable, whether they're private or public authorities, more often than not a, a mix of the two. But if you're not a, an absolute relativist and you think that there's generally an agreed upon sense of what it means to be truly human then and, and to be free and to be really happy as opposed to you know addicted to all sorts of whims and passions and substances and what have you, if you take that view, then you can reason about it. You can certainly debate it. It's not just the point of me saying so or me imposing my view, but you know, the standards of a society. And in the West, we have this tradition. We have the classical tradition. We have the Judeo-Christian inheritance. And that forms and also imposes limits on true totalitarianism. Because, precisely because, this is a worldview that says human beings have this inherent dignity. And so you cannot absolutely coerce them. You cannot, you cannot certainly force the act of faith on them. That has to be their own free response. And so the orthodoxy that I, Sarabamari, would enshrine happens to have all sorts of limits on how far the state can go. Witness the alternative, a society that, an increasingly secular societies, in the guise of fighting a, of a disease, wh- what is the limit on what they'll do with uh, coronavirus restrictions because, precisely because they think that the preservation of material life and not necessarily this, this more holistic account of what's a good life suffices to justify any rule. And these are, these are your liberal democracies. Has your theory been tested in several socialist states throughout history? I'm thinking of the Soviet Union, Ukraine, Cuba, North Korea, all these places where the state tries to impose their own view of what a perfect human being or a human being should be like. Not all of them go quite as far as being completely, totally authoritarian, but many of them still have massive restrictions and limits on people and try and force them into an area in which they think is, is cohesive and good for society. So has your ideas not already been tested and failed? No, because I'm a, uh, I, I, I don't, there's no comparing. My ideas have been uh, uh, tested and succeeded because my ideas are essentially the foundations of the West, right? Uh, the... the But did this not happen naturally? That's my point. Your your idea is to use the state to impose your own ideas, which is, you know, fair enough. That's your point of view. But didn't the Enlightenment and Western values and Christianity happen through a natural process rather than through imposing through laws or through the state? The Enlightenment came to power through a a massive imposition of violence. It came about, as you know, in in 1789 with the guillotining of, of priests, the ransacking of churches, the raping of nuns, and of course, then was sort of consolidated by Napoleonic power. So no, I mean, it's that, it, it, it is not the case that any of these things happened organically, whatever that means. And then, the, by the way, the rise of Christianity and Christendom, see, there's the advent of Christ, but it's only with the, the Constantinian conversion, right? With, when with the Emperor Constantine converts to Christianity, that the Christian share of the Roman population goes from something like scholars debated, you know, whatever, 5, 10, 20% at most, to suddenly, you know, the vast majority of Romans are Christians. So that, and by the way, with that came a more humane social order, right? That you don't expose unwanted babies, you don't leave them outside the walls of the city for them to die. You, women gain a new dignity because of, of Christianity's prohibition against divorce and, and what have you. That was aided along and made possible by the conversion of the Emperor Constantine and the, uh, the transformation of the religion from essentially a small sect that was only for a kind of spiritual elite who could withstand the persecutions of pagan Rome into first a recognized or legal religion and then soon after that a, the official religion of the Roman Empire. And that's when you have the sort of massive growth of Christianity. And it, along with it, yes, I mean, there's the, the suppression of various kinds of heretical sects that you can look, you know, Donatists or what have you, where state power was used to enforce a Christian orthodoxy. And that's the birth of Christendom. It's the birth of the West. So there is no sort of like 
natural organic development of of these things versus an imposition by the state which must only look like you know uh soviet communism or or north korea what have you every society uses the laws to shape people it just happens that again the christian and classical tradition the one that i champion also recognizes the inherent dignity of the human beings and therefore does not do in trying to shape people it does not do things like throwing people in the gulag or executing people on mass because that goes against the very idea that christianity seeks to enshrine in society why do you choose christianity as a religion to be triumphed over other traditions in throughout history so i mean first of all there's the, the obvious personal answer which is i'm personally a christian i have to be a, a convert the reason that i think the christian heritage and tradition are important for for the west is simply because christianity forms one third if you will of the triad that stands at the foundation of the west the west is this marvelous synthesis of three things really roman law greek philosophy and then christian you could say judeo christian or biblical faith and the the reason i think it's such a indispensable force for what makes the west the west has to do with the way that christianity embraces reason uniquely and you can almost think of it as a kind of providential synthesis between faith and reason i already kind of hinted at it when i spoke about john paul ii speaking about breathing with both lungs to give that another telling you would think there's these two traditions developing separately in very different parts of the world in the greco-roman sphere you have the birth of philosophy the, the love of wisdom and the search for rational answers to life mis- life's mysteries which before that had most people had answered through mythology then comes in the Gre- uh, greek world this way of trying to answer those questions using reason with uh, the tradition of socrates and plato and aristotle and all along it's searching for some ultimate cause why are these things all around us why does change happen and independently of any kind of christian revelation the tradition of philosophy that's represented by plato and aristotle reaches the conclusion that there must be a god an ultimate source of being in which all other things participate or an uncaused cause that causes every other change that we witness around us on a daily basis separately in the middle east in the ancient middle east you have a people who unlike the other peoples of the region worship a god who says i am a universal god my ordinances for you for example for keeping the sabbath to tie everything together apply not just to you but to strangers to the strangers who sojourn among you and i am being itself in exodus 3:14 when he kind of names himself he describes himself as the i am i am being and then through this marvelous encounter for the jews would have looked like a conquest and was a conquest that greek philosophical tradition comes into contact with the judeo christian tradition and they begin to enrich each other and then in with the advent of christianity the alliance between the two comes even closer to each other because the god of the cross who who is the same god who said i am in the sinai now says identifies himself with reason in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and when we say the word the greek word of of course is logos reason so in the beginning was reason and reason was with god and reason was god and so you have this remarkable again encounter between the two that creates this is not easy is full of tension it's brought about through conquest and war nevertheless this synthesis between man's desire to know the world through his reason the reason itself coming to man becoming intimate among human beings and seeking to to redeem human beings that tradition to me is why the west is the west it's why the west has a precisely the things that you care about has this inquisitive civilization it but also this humane civilization that's a product of those two forces and i think it's both that are at, uh, under threat of being lost to us by the way it's not that we've just discarded christianity we're also discarding that older account of reason that you find in greek philosophy when we look at the world and don't see its orderliness or don't don't honor its orderliness we're also going against not just the spirit of jerusalem 
but the spirit of Athens. You need both, I think, to have the West. And so as, a, as an immigrant, by the way, as someone who's, for whom these two traditions aren't quite my native soil, I nevertheless think that something would be lost and is a threat of being lost in the West if we don't honor both of these kind of foundations. And of course, then there's the, the Roman element of, of where a civilization that seeks to spread law everywhere. So it's those three, really. But Christianity is indispensable in all that. Christianity is, in a way, is the, it's the glue. It's the spiritual firmament in which these kind of stars uh, shine. I do want to ask about a tweet of yours that was very controversial, and I know you probably won't want me to bring it up, but it is interesting in this discussion because there is an alternative system out there to the West, and that is China. So I'm going to quote from that tweet that's now been deleted, and I want to ask about this idea of China versus the West and whether they have a better system than ours, whether we should be looking towards China instead of our decadent, declining society, as you might argue. So, so you said, I'm at peace with a Chinese-led 21st century. Late liberal America is too dumb and decadent to last as a superpower. Chinese civilization, especially if it recovers more of its Confucian roots, will possess a great deal of natural virtue. What do you say to the critics of that tweet that China is this awful, oppressive country and well, everything By the else? way, it was kind of a, it was, it was more than, you know, we have expression tongue-in-cheek. My tongue was firmly planted in cheek in this case. But what, what I should tell you is that it was in response, that day, this, this CIA recruitment video, the CIA is the Central Intelligence Agency, had published this recruitment video for basically recruiting new spies. And the woman featured in the ad said, you know, I'm a whatever, bisexual woman, and I suffer from anxiety disorders, and I work at the CIA. And I just thought, just look at that from the point of view of, of America's or the West's major rivals, the Chinese, the Russians, they look at it, they're like, why are we even bothering these people? I mean, it, it's just too stupid to put it to words, but it's just, this, you, you watch that, you think this is not a serious power. America used to be a serious power. Now its intelligence agencies tout the fact that their spies, their spooks, suffer from anxiety disorders and aren't sure about their gender identity. So there was kind of a joke. You see, you see that, you're like, okay, you know what? I, for one, welcome our Chinese overlords. That was the spirit in which I, I tweeted that. Now, that said, there is, and anyone who thinks this is, this is false doesn't know the state of China, there is embedded in Chinese civilization this deep strand of Confucian wisdom. And it survives, it persists, precisely despite the depredations of the communist regime, which did everything you could in its early years to wipe out Chinese traditionalism. And Chinese traditionalism is, yes, it's, I mean, the whole point is it's, it's deferential to authority. It's extremely, it places great deal of emphasis on honoring your mother and father, which, by the way, has a Western analog in the, in the Decalogue to, to honor your uh, mother and your father. And many elements which, if put to good use, if you will, would make for a very strong civilization. And one of the, we've been talking about the synthesis between Greek philosophy, Roman law, and Christian religion. One of the kind of true jewels of that synthesis, the products of that synthesis, is the idea of the natural law. People think when they hear about the natural law, often they think it means the law of the jungle because it vaguely sounds like something like David Attenborough, you know, in observing, you know, the tigers hunting each other. But that's not what the natural law is. It's that there is a law that governs the universe as a whole and human beings, if they're a part of the universe as a whole, they partake in it. They also are governed by a natural law. Law, the, the law governing them as human beings, which means as rational beings who have freedom of choice as well. There's an account of what it means to fulfill your nature as a human being, to truly fulfill your nature. And the, the, the natural law is your interior awareness of the moral law that seems to govern the universe. All people somehow have this interior voice that tells them across civilizations, across religions, that murder is bad that cheating is bad. We don't like cheaters. We don't like murderers. We don't like people who profane sacred things, so on and so forth. That's that interior awareness of the kind of moral law. That's the natural law. And there is a lot in Chinese civilization that is consonant with, with Western concepts of natural law. And, you know, there's serious scholarship being done to attempt to see where is that, where are the points of agreement between the two, where they meet each other and can see eye to eye. 
And so, yeah, I mean, I think it would be foolish for people in the West as we go through what I think is a very kind of sad period of decline with our Olympic athletes can't honor our flag. Our cops on both sides of the Atlantic kneel to activists and criminals. You know, you have that situation and you then you turn to China and you're like, okay, they have the scientific technological kind of drive. Imagine if they also, instead of communist ideology, took up this kind of natural law tradition which they have. You know, they wouldn't necessarily use that label for it. Then you think, okay, yeah, this could be a serious rival. And so I think it's foolish to think China just means you know, the depredation of the communist regime, of which I'm more aware of than anyone else. But it also means this is civilizational inheritance, which they seem to take more seriously than we do ours. Obviously, as a Christian, I obviously prefer our civilizational inheritance. I think it's a fuller and richer one. But I think it would be foolish to discount the strengths of a China to be and to rest on our own laurels precisely at a time when, again, our institutions are such a mess. So that tweet had a jokey aspect, but it also has a serious aspect, which I'm happy to defend. We could do a whole podcast about China, but we won't do that. And, and, and I think it's an important to add that, um, you know, you talk about the history of certain cultures and values and traditions. I mean, Chinese history in the last 100 years has been one of the most oppressive, awful places to live on Earth for many people. But anyway, as I said, we won't, I don't want to dive too much into that, because, but that is a really interesting topic. I do want to ask, as I mentioned earlier, about your personal journey from Iran, the physical journey from Iran to the United States, but also the personal, political, moral and religious journey. I don't want to psychoanalyze you too much, but you said you wrote this book for your son. I suspect, and as with all authors, you wrote the book for yourself as well, in a way, because you've gone from such a drastic change from, from A to B from all of those things that I mentioned earlier. So how did that happen? Can you explain your journey, your physical and your personal journey to where you are now? It can sound exotic, but I think it's in many ways, when people read my earlier book about it, I wrote a memoir titled uh, From Fire by Water, they'll be struck by both its exoticness, because I'm, yes, I'm from Iran. There's this kind of uncanny familiarity where like, oh, okay, that, that's a very familiar Western journey, and I'll tell you how. So I was born to a very kind of secular liberal family in Iran. Uh, my parents had supported the Iranian revolution, thinking they'd get, you know, more kind of Western-style democracy. In fact, they ended up saddled with the Islamic Republic, and we're uh, unhappy about that. So I grew up in this milieu where I was surrounded by Western books and movies and ideas, and decided, having believed in God in a childish way as a kid, I decided I was an atheist when I was 13 or 14, before I came to the United States. Then we got the green card, and through, my, through an uncle of mine and immigrated to the United States. And I was actually, as a kind of new atheist, which is very typical, you know, you expect America to be this sort of super secular place. But at least where I ended up in, in, in you know, rural Utah, it was not the case. It was actually a pretty, pretty religious place. And so I kind of picked up my rebellion against the Ayatollahs of Iran and applied it to America now, you know, and I'm, and I'm sort of a precocious teenager, fresh off the boat, full of ideas. So here becomes the familiar part of it, which is that it's the journey of the young man going through Nietzsche and then from Nietzsche, this, you know, and his proclamation that God is dead, finding Marx and sort of the Marxist tradition, picking that up in, in a way drawn to its, it was promised that if, if human beings don't have a nature, you can do whatever you want. You can, you can build whatever kind of civilization that you want. And then having that worldview in some ways run up against run up against reality. Run up, first of all, you know, obviously reading the history of Marxist regimes absolutely horrified me. Uh, once I did that, it didn't take long to become a kind of small C conservative. And then on the religious dimension, I mean, it's a, it's a longer story to tell, but that ultimately I heard the voice of the conscience, which everyone has, I think, ex I, you know, except utter sort of psychopaths. Everyone has that voice that says, that urges you to do good and to eschew evil. Now, you don't always succeed, and when you don't succeed, when you don't listen to the voice of the conscience, then it racks you with guilt afterward. And I, as an atheist, had to ponder or ask myself what it was that brought about that voice. And like C.S. Lewis, I ultimately concluded that the voice of the conscience is a proof for the existence of God. This is called the moral argument for the existence of God, that yes, you know, the... the the conscience might have evolutionary explanations and, you know, at the level of a biological phenomenon, you, phenomenon, you can reduce it to the 
firing of synapses in the brain or what have you. But the why question of what, you know, why is it that we're, we have embedded in us this, this deep sense of right and wrong, which seems to reflect a kind of moral order in the outside world, ultimately led me to conclude that there is a, there is a God as it was a personal God, and then ultimately a God of the, uh, the God of the Bible. And I happened to be in Britain, actually. I was in London when I converted to Catholicism. I happened to be going to a, a Protestant church that was right next to a Catholic church. And one of those days, I stepped into the Catholic church. Uh, it's called the London Oratory. And I was awestruck by the Mass. And uh, at, at the very end of it, I, you know, and this is the kind of mystical part of it, I decided to become a Roman Catholic. So I was received into the church where you're sitting right now. Part of your book, you know, you, you talked about you've, you've written the book for your son and you, there's, a, there's a quote from your book about one of the nightmare scenarios that your son is going to grow up into his 40s and he's going to have a girlfriend who he doesn't want to marry and he'll be touring Europe in his electric car, scrolling on Tinder and having casual sex. And this was a total disaster in your mind. Why? What's so, what's so wrong with that? Isn't he having fun? Well, I mean, that's, that's what we've been talking about for the whole hour. I mean, it's, it's, that, it's, the, it's the purposelessness of it in the sense that he hasn't even exercised his freedom, really, if freedom is freedom for the good. Then in that scenario, my son has just sort of floated through life, as many people do nowadays. But there are other higher forms of happiness that he'll never have experienced, like the happiness of of going to confession and, and that freedom that you get from laying down your the, sort of the accumulated baggage of sin or just the more natural happiness of, of being handed his own child as I was when a nurse, when my son was born in Les- London uh, at, at a Chelsea and Westminster Hospital, handed me and an H- NHS nurse that handed me my son. That joy he's never, he's never experienced living out of tune with his nature as a human being. And so, yeah, I mean, look, there's a possibility though I will grant you this, that if my son isn't formed, is not formed in the way that I intend to form him, and he'll go through life, and he'll end up in that stage, and he doesn't even know what he's missed. And so if you ask him, you know, do you live a happy life? He'd certainly say, yes, yes, this is great. All I want to do is just random hookups and, and traveling around Europe. So that's a very possibility. It's a dark possibility. And on that dark note, I think it's the perfect time to end. Thank you so much, Sohrab, for joining us. That was brilliant. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.